shy of what would have been minor league opening day in the 2020 season. Welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com, talking all things minor league baseball as the uh, world turns, sort of. Uh, hi, I'm Tyler Mott. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hi, Sam. Hi. It, it is still turning. I can confirm that. The, the sun rises and sets every evening. So uh, I don't know. The way I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and, and um, as weird as is as it's been for us all to be in our homes and doing everything responsibly and uh, all that and wondering when baseball does come back every day that passes is another day closer to when baseball does return. Um, So that's the kind of mindset I'm taking these days. We don't know when that'll be, but we know tomorrow is one day closer no matter what. So there is that. That is a good way to look at it. And uh, hi to all of you. I'm sure you are just as exasperated and, and tired and, uh you know all of that as we are but uh hopefully the show will get you through uh you know an hour or so of your day and that's uh, again that's an hour closer to everything being uh somewhat normal and um we will have a handful of conversations today benjamin he'll finally watch the sandlot we will get to it i know you're all eagerly awaiting despite the fact that we uh recorded the interview i teased at the beginning and then after we got talking about the things that we were scheduled to talk about i was like all right benjamin hill's on twitter and then sam was like no we have to talk about the thing that we're <laughs> excited to talk about because my brain no longer functions um But uh, one thing that went up on the site this week that I want to direct all of you to, if you're dreaming of good days with baseball ahead, um, one of my favorite pieces that we as a staff have ever put together is up on the site, and it is uh, a collection of all of us charting our dream road trips for a minor league weekend essentially a long weekend if you want to hit a few games in a few days uh across the united states and canada as uh one of our uh writers chose the lone canadian minor league team and he may be the other dude on this podcast and we're going to talk about it here in a second um but it's it's great because everybody got kind of creative with it and people recommended the national parks that they would hit or the restaurants that they would go to or the historical sites that they would see and it's just i think everyone did such a good job with this and i really love it and it's up on the site right now um sam had the best lead in to his uh which is we all chose kind of a a region or a, a league or that type of thing to pattern our trip around sam's is a northwest trip and sam's first sentence of why is quote i've got plenty of flannel to pack <laughs> i think that's just because I, I was looking at my closet yeah and i'm just thinking like i've got a lot of flannel what am i going to do with this especially now as we get to the summer months like when am i going to wear this again oh you know what i'm going to go to the northwest and that's it not really i mean it, it, what reason i really did it was uh i've never been to the northwest i know tyler you spent a good amount of time up there um, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. I've always wanted to see, you know, the Seattle area, the Puget Sound area. I've heard great things about going to Vancouver. Uh, pitching this as a minor league road trip seemed like the perfect time. And also, you get to throw in Hillsborough and you get the Portland area as well. Um, sounds like three great cities, uh, three great places to go. And also, there's a little bit of whiplash that it would be involved in my trip uh, going from you know, Hillsborough, which is a class A short season team, to Tacoma, which is a triple A team, uh, to Everett and Vancouver, again, class A short season teams. Uh, getting to see that wide 
width and breadth of minor league baseball would be really cool as a trip. And, you know, again, using up all this flannel that I, I could definitely go a week just only wearing that. So using up that, going to see Voodoo Donuts in Portland, uh, these are all things on my checklist. I would have thought that this dude living in Brooklyn with his beard would also own a lot of flannel. Are you going to bring some, like, uh, homegrown coffee beans, Sam? You going <laughs> to do some, some weird interpretive artwork? I don't know. Is that a thing? I, I, I was don't on know. a good roll. I was on a good roll, and then I ruined it. It sounded Never good. Mind. I can <laughs> if you want me to. Um, no, I would gladly accompany you on that trip, though. That's uh, one of my favorite uh, places in the country. It's also it's really cool to me to see uh, which areas everyone chose because I think a lot of them are just so different from where we live. Paige Schechter, who is one of our editors, Paige chose the Cal League um, and Paige is a, a, works in the city, obviously, and uh, and lives in New Jersey, correct? Yeah. No, she lives in, yeah, she lives in Jersey. So, uh, an East Coaster, she would go to the Cal League, um, and one of the reasons that she points out is to visit four of the five California League teams that were mentioned on an episode of the TV show Life. Uh, and in the first season of that show, there's an episode called Farthingdale in which detectives Damian Lewis, uh, Sarah Shahi, hopefully I pronounced your last name right, Sarah, I'm sure you're an avid listener of this podcast, and their boss, Robin Wieger, they solve a mystery based on five ball caps and five bottles of wine in the possession of a dead man living two lives. How do a mystery based on ball caps? How have I never heard of this show before? <laughs> That's my, that is, I, w- I am that detective. That's all you need. That's, I would solve everything. Um, but Page Pick California, which I thought was really cool. Darren Smith, uh, our other fantastic editor, Darren picked uh, a trip that kind of echoes a trip that he took as a kid um, in which he traveled to Yellowstone with his mom. He took a road trip to Yellowstone with his mom, um, which I thought was super cool. So he would go to the Pioneer League and would travel around uh, kind of the northern Rockies in the United States. Um, Josh Jackson, who is a a native East Coaster from Maine and uh, now lives in Los Angeles. Josh picked uh, an itinerary that he actually came up with a couple of years ago and sent to our good buddy Benjamin Hill uh, in the Midwest League in which Josh suggested that they essentially raft or kayak down the Mississippi to all of these different spots, which are like right on the river, which is a brilliant idea. Um, but this is just, it's so cool. All of these are really neat and they are, uh, they're very easily done when baseball gets back on its feet. Um, you can do these trips in, uh, a long week. It doesn't even have to be a long weekend for most of these. You could hit these on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you really wanted to, if the schedule lines up right. But I just love this, this piece so much. And it's, uh, it's up on the site right now. Yeah. And and if anybody's ever been on any of these trips or, uh, wants to sign up for one once baseball gets going again let us know and, and know how it went i mean I, w- I would love to do the northwest swing myself uh hopefully we i'll get to do it soon tyler you did like north carolina the carolinas which you've done as a carolina leaguer uh in the past yeah I'm it was sure, kind right? of a it was kind of a cop-out um but only because it's like rather than um trying a new restaurant it's like going to your favorite place because you know how good it's going to be so i picked uh, a swing through yeah north carolina and south carolina because north carolina is really the cradle of minor league baseball there's like i think approximately a thousand teams in north carolina um and so i started off in durham I love the Raleigh-Durham area. I love Durham. Uh, the location of the Durham Bulls Athletic Park is great. Uh, the location of the the DAP, the original home of the Bulls, the Durham Athletic Park uh, is just a short drive away, and that's fantastic. Durham is a city that I know has changed a lot. I talked to people who you know, lived in Durham 
in the 80s and 90s around the time that uh, you know the movie was made and came out and then when they built the new ballpark and looking at it now it's completely different um, but it is an awesome place I've been there for a couple of work trips uh, for my other job uh, over the last few years for uh, trips to, to Duke in North Carolina and um, the area around the, the DBAP is great um, just the whole city of Durham I really like a lot then uh, I said I was going to make a swing to my favorite stop in the minor leagues which is Granger Stadium in Kinston North Carolina home now of the Downey wood ducks uh i was thoroughly trolled today by the carolina mudcats for not realizing that zebulon north carolina is like right on the road between durham and kinston so my apologies when i was in the carolina league uh the mudcats were not in the carolina league they were still uh, a double a team at that time they're in the southern league uh now they have joined the carolina league but i didn't know i had no idea where zebulon was so i'm sorry so i've amended it to add zebulon to my itinerary uh but then granger stadium home of the wood ducks and then a swing down uh to myrtle beach where i worked for three seasons as the radio guy uh for the pelicans you can't beat a, a beach town in minor league baseball and plus i have had a, a craving for uh, bubba's kicking chicken sandwich from dagwoods uh which is like a five minute drive from the ballpark i've had a craving for that for uh, what is it? Nine years now since I last lived there. So uh, this was all just driven by a sandwich that I want. <laughs> that in that in King's Barbecue in Kinston. That's pretty much. I just wrote it based on things that I would like to eat in isolation now. I mean, there's, there's I I shouted out Voodoo Donuts, which I've been to you in That's Denver, true. but I I want to go to true. the one in in uh, that Portland. Was, that was your first so, time, right? That was my first donuts? time. Um, yes. Yeah, when you were out here a, a couple of years ago, we went and bought like 17 donuts, ate all of them, but then we went on a hike. So I felt like it. we we canceled it out, sort of. I don't even need to cancel it out. I'm just good with it. Yeah, the when taste eat, and the uh, flavor. 9,000 calories in a day. I think if you go on one hike, I think it cancels it out. It's like that old Mitch Hedberg bit, like wishing that you could eat something unhealthy and something healthy at the same time. And they travel down to your stomach like you'd eat a potato chip and a carrot, and they'd get there, and the carrot would go, it's cool, he's with me. That's us with a hike and nine donuts apiece. That's <laughs> pretty healthy way to live. Uh, but that's a great story, and it's up on the site right now. Uh, we got some other really cool stuff that is up on the site already or is coming to the site. We will hear in just a little while from two of our writers uh, in Benjamin Hill and Kelsey Hennigan and uh, a lot more coming up on this week's episode of the show before the show. As an official partner of minor league baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. We've been teasing something with Benjamin Hill for the last few weeks, and today we will finally get a chance to discuss it, but not yet. Uh, as we welcome Ben in. Hi, Ben. I know it's a big week. It's a big week. Big days, big weeks, big months, big years. We're going big. This is 2020. 
Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, we got uh, that conversation coming up here in a little bit. But uh, a couple pieces that Ben has up on the site uh, that we want to highlight for this week's episode of the show before the show. We're going to start with um, another story that we kind of touched on, I think, a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, Minor league teams across the country, obviously, have been, like everyone else, uh, forced to send their employees home to work from home uh, for the last few weeks. And Ben got in touch with or had a lot of uh, front office staff members get in touch with him to talk about what life is like for them right now uh, trying to to keep their work going and all that stuff from home during the pandemic. And uh, a really interesting piece that's up on the site. Yeah, I worked on that quite a bit over the last uh, week or 10 days. Um, Some of you may remember uh, for many years, part of my winter meetings coverage was job seeker journals where I'd recruit uh, people who are looking for a job at the winter meetings to write about their experiences. And that basic premise is what informed this. I just kind of had the idea of like, huh, I'd like to cover the industry during this point in a way that kind of highlights what people who work for minor league baseball teams are doing. I mean, obviously, everyone is adjusting their routines right now, uh, given the situation. But I wanted to, because it's MILB.com and we're writing about minor league baseball, I wanted to really uh, shine a light on the employees themselves. So um, recruited a bunch of people, and we're going to be hearing kind of weekly installments from them. Some might, you know, uh, just do an entry or two and drop out, and then I'll replace them with someone else. But I think this is going to be a, a rolling thing for a little while, just trying to highlight how the industry is working and got a bunch of different perspectives uh, throughout the industry, you know, from interns to general managers, uh, just kind of what they're doing with their days. So check that out, MILB.com, which is the official site of Minor League Baseball. And uh, in this discussion, like you said, you have – People who work in marketing, people who work in promos, the GM of, of the Jupiter Hammerheads is in here. Uh, amongst that wide array of people that you got to, to chip in for this so far, uh, what are the early things you're seeing about how front offices are kind of overcoming this and, and not being at, at the ballpark every day? Here we sit, you know, a week away from what should have been minor league opening day. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry, just like everybody, is, is adjusting. I think in this first installment, it's a lot of people uh, kind of saying, hey, I'm just getting used to this, or, you know, here's some of my kind of boilerplate advice, you know, the importance of setting routines and that kind of thing. Um, and, and again, like with a lot of us, like, okay, well, one, you know, being on Zoom calls quite a bit and, uh, you know, communicating with your staff that way. I think minor league baseball, more than in most industries, is collaborative and you're kind of bouncing ideas uh, or, collab- you know, just collaborating in some way, shape or form with coworkers all day. So, you know, there's a lot of Zoom calls going on for sure. And there's also the time, um, you know, to uh, like you know to research best practices and to maybe, you know, have some more uh, longer term projects. It's kind of like, hey. We're not in this insane crush as we rush to opening day into several days. Uh, so there is time to take a breath, try to make the most of your time, uh, you know, research things that teams are other doing, reaching out to your peers in the industry, uh, just kind of maybe trying to get information that can fall through the cracks during an otherwise busy time uh, to set yourself up uh, as strong as you can for when you come back. There is uh, another great story on the site, which actually went up today. And again, we're recording this on uh, Thursday the 2nd. But um, Bruce Rogers, who was a super fan of the High Desert Mavericks, a team that uh, ceased to exist a few years ago now, um, and a team that we didn't really talk about a ton back then. They were in kind of one of the the difficult situations of minor league teams, ballpark-wise and setting-wise and all that. Uh, But you sort of forget with franchises like that that there are people who truly loved those teams and loved them for a long time and uh bruce who passed away in december was that guy for high desert this is a really cool piece uh as well that's up on the site 
Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a story that, um, you know, we're all kind of casting about for different ways to do things and, uh, you know, fresh material. And, of course, I'm covering things, you know, like what teams are doing during, you know, this time period specifically and the front office journals. But it's also a good time to just kind of try to find things that just celebrate baseball or celebrate fandom or celebrate minor league baseball or what have you. So this is a story that came about simply because um, Shane Phillips, uh, who now works for the Amarillo Sod Poodles, he got in touch with me. Uh, his career started in high desert and he said, Hey Ben, you know, this guy, Bruce Rogers, I got to high desert in 2015. It was February of 2015. You know, the season was just a couple months away. The team had been kind of dysfunctional in the years preceding, uh, you know, my arrival and the arrival of a bunch of new employees along with new ownership. And uh, so everyone's scrambling and he, he's, they're way behind on the calls to season ticket holders. And his first call is to this guy, uh, Bruce Rogers, who was, pretty pissed off at the team and didn't want anything to do with it because he hadn't liked how it operated. But Shane talked him into coming into the ballpark, said, hey, look, give it another try. They became friends. And the story kind of goes from there. It's about sort of the, the um, yeah, the intensity of the fandom in minor league baseball, uh, kind of a celebration of teams that are no longer with us, celebration of fans who are no longer with us. I talked to Bruce's wife, Sharon, uh, who sang the national anthem um, all over California and at 12 different stadiums overall, and Bruce would manage her career. So it's kind of about a couple, you know, their late in life passion for minor league baseball, their national anthem tours, uh, the connections that Bruce had with a front office employee. It was a lot to synthesize. Uh, <laughs> took me a long time to write that story yeah, yesterday. I, bet. I hope it's somewhat coherent. Yeah, I hope it's somewhat coherent. But I, I really did like the exercise of just taking someone, um, you know, who's not going to naturally have a story written about them and use it as a way to celebrate minor league baseball, the people who work in, uh, in minor league baseball, the fans, and the connections that arise uh, in these front offices all over the country. And uh, just what a, I think a special and unique thing it is. Yeah, and the, one of my favorite parts of this story was Shane Phillips telling this story, like you mentioned, of you know, Bruce was the first person he called uh, to talk about season tickets, but it wasn't just a, a call. Uh, Bruce, you know, talked his ear off about this needs to change, this needs to change, but Shane reached out to him and said, "All right, why don't you come to the ballpark and we talk? We can talk face to face." That seems so rare in almost any business transaction, but how much was High Desert even needing to go that next year? level to to bring you know guys like bruce back and, and keep them in the fold even in the waning days yeah i mean obviously that's a a team that struggled in uh, myriad ways uh, the ballpark um you know kind of rapidly deteriorated the uh, attendance went way down due to a greater you know economic collapse in the region and uh yeah sometimes the team was just in the midst of all that was not operated very well so even though 2015 was the mavericks uh, you know, penultimate season um you know there's a lot of work to do to say hey <laughs> you know we might not be long for this world we don't know but to try to reconnect with the community, to try to say, hey, things are going to be different now, to try to say, we're going to put the best show we can, even in these trying circumstances. And uh, that's something I've loved just in traveling all around uh, minor league baseball is often these teams uh, that are a little down on their luck or really struggle with attendance or really struggle because of their ballpark have some of the most dedicated front office members and the most dedicated fans. So even though it's easy to say like, oh, why would you go there? That place is a dump. No one goes there. 
Conversely, I feel like you find a lot of the best baseball people in those places because it's the people whose love for the game is so strong. They don't really need the proverbial bells and whistles. They're going to go just because it's baseball, because it's their hometown, and it's something they want to support. So uh, I think it really does forge connections in that way. And I think that was particularly the case in High Desert. I know people who were there during the final years, uh, as well as the people who were in Bakersfield, the other team in the Cal League uh, that got contracted with the corresponding addition of two teams in the Carolina League. Um, and I know the people who worked with those those teams and those markets uh, truly loved it and uh, will always miss it, even if they do understand you know, the reasons behind uh, why those teams are no longer there. Ben, one more thing. Um, we did a story on the site this week, which uh, and all of us as minor league writers outlined our uh, ideal minor league road trip, a short kind of weekend-ish type of road trip. That's actually part of your job. The rest of us are kind of, oh, here's what I would like to do, and you get a chance to actually do that. And yours was uh, a swing through Pennsylvania, which is a kind of a nostalgic journey for you being a, a Pennsylvania guy and um, touching on some of the, the roots of how you got into minor league baseball. Tell us about your road trip itinerary. Yeah, you know, that's something I mentioned in the write-up of this story is, you know, I certainly love that uh, my job has road trips as a ballpark road trips as a part of it. And it's something I set out to do and I want to continue to do. Uh, but, you know, as you guys know, as, as anyone knows uh, in, in the context of their job, you know, your job is your job. So when I go on a road trip, uh, I'd love to do it, but it's very stressful and there's a lot of logistics to work out. And I have a lot of angst about, uh, you know, what I'm going to write about and, uh, you know, how I'm going to do it and, you know, anxiety laden dreams when it's come, when I'm coming up on a road trip with how it's going to get done. And so my main point was, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever really thought of this before that, but for all the ballparks I've been to, I've never been on a road trip that was just as a fan where I was only beholden to myself and my own wants and needs and not the larger work context. And I was like, that's what I want. I want to go on a road trip as a fan. And if I'm going to do that, I want to reconnect with the teams and the area that was most important to young me as I became a baseball fan, minor league baseball fan. So I start in uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre. Uh, my first minor league game ever was the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Red Barons in 1989. That was their inaugural season. You know, now that team is the Rail Riders, they're a Yankees affiliate, but you know, wanted to start there as a homage to the first minor league team I ever saw. And then, uh, you know, the Philly, the Scranton was a triple a AAA Phillies affiliate at the time. And so from there I go to the Phillies current affiliate, you know, I grew up a Phillies fan, uh, Lehigh Valley, iron pigs, you know, great ballpark, great food, uh, great fans. Um, and again, fairly close to where I grew up and, uh, where I have a lot of memories. And from there, very short drive to Reading, uh, one of my favorite of all ballpark environments, you know, the mix of a classic ballpark, but a great front office, passionate fans, uh, really good, quirky, irreverent, unique, strong energy. And so that was my little trip. And I'd love to do that sometime just as a fan, just with my friends and, uh, you know, really put everything else aside and just as corny as it sounds, just get right back into, uh, what made me love baseball in the first place and to really uh, jump into that kind of atmosphere. Ben, All right, Ben. Well, we, oh, go ahead, Sam. We, well, you can't let him go without asking about the thing you teased at the top. Time. Oh, right. Yeah. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> this but, is how you let's just get it out there. Buzz, ben see. finally watched the, the Sandlot. I so, did. I watched the Sandlot. Sand, I can't even, it's not the Sandlot. It's the Sandlot. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> did I watched you decide the on for the, the hashtag again? The Sand Watch was the, sand the hashtag. Watch. Right, right, right. The Sand Watch. Uh, I live tweeted the experience uh, and got it under my belt after lots of poking and prodding and trolling and whatnot. Uh, I finally watched an iconic baseball movie on. on I watched it on March 26th, what would have been a Major League Baseball opening day. 
And so your thoughts? Think. Oh, oh, oh! You wanted to know my opinions on it. Oh, well, you know, I overthink things uh, in life, and especially kind of live tweeting and feeling like I need a strong opinion. I was overthinking the whole way. Um, you know, I had some issues with the larger format just because it seemed too familiar. Uh, you know, like Stand By Me or The Wonder Years or Christmas Story, the kind of uh, baby boomer era, middle-aged man looking fondly back uh, at his childhood. It just seemed like, oh boy, here we go again with this format. So I was a little, from the jump, just kind of a little bored by that format. But yeah, it was episodic. It was lighthearted. It was fun and it was funny and it did uh, have like a true love of baseball coursing through it at all times. So I completely understand how if I was 10 years old, nine years old, when I saw it for the first time, how I would have loved that movie. There's no doubt about it. As an adult, I was, you know, I had some issues and and, then live tweeting it. I was just overthinking everything and and Squint's iconic scene at the pool where he passes out. So Wendy makes out with them. I was like, yeah, that does not age well. I was like, I was like, I was like, Twitter loves this movie, but Twitter likes to cancel people for this kind of behavior. I was like, is Squint okay? You know, that kind of thing. I was overthinking uh, elements like that. I was certainly overthinking the appearance of the James Earl Jones character at the end where, you know, he's like Babe Ruth's buddy. And he's like, but I didn't get to continue playing with Babe Ruth. And I'm thinking like, yes, because you were black and you played in an era in which baseball wasn't integrated yet. And this is a great point (laughs) to make. He's just like, because I was blind. I was like, okay, you went blind, but we're we're sweeping a whole lot of other stuff under the rug right now. Again, over overthinking it, but that's how I am. So I was overthinking it. I was struggling with my overthoughts, and uh, you know, someone on Twitter right afterwards said, "Hey," he said, "Just that you're overthinking it. This movie is about the love of baseball that you had as a kid and the joy of playing baseball, my friend." And I was just like, "Okay, man, deep breath. Just go with that. Just." It's okay. So, you know, a lot of thoughts. I always have a lot of thoughts, but I liked it, and I'm glad I watched it. Well, that's good. That's uh, it ties a nice bow around it. And Benjamin Hill, you can go back and find those tweets if you would like uh, at uh, Ben's Biz on Twitter, and uh, the stories are up on the site right now at milb.com as well. And uh, Benjamin Hill, everybody, Ben, thanks, man. And uh, I'm sure we'll find some other movie to assign you at some point soon. Yeah, if you have any recommendations, let me know. And, uh, geez, Tyler, we'll get into this some other time, but I saw via Twitter that you're watching The Sopranos right now for the first time. I, I am. am you too. are as well? So. Okay. Okay, because somebody responded and said, I think Ben just started that too. Um, yeah, I, I have never watched The Sopranos before, and I just finished season one. And uh, it's, I mean, obviously very good. As uh, a member of the, I think it was the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs front office responded to me, uh, I just tweeted out and said, folks, uh, The Sopranos is very good. And he said, nobody needs this tweet. We all know. So uh, I'm late. <laughs> I'm late to the game. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is It is quite good, obviously. And uh, how far into it are you? I'm in season five, about midway through season five. Oh, so, so you know, considerably ahead of okay. you. But, uh, yeah, I've been watching for a couple months. My brother's actually watching it for the first time. So we've been trying to, you know, have Sopranos hangs. At first they were in real life, and we watched the final three episodes of an episode uh, of a season together. Now we're doing some virtual Sopranos hangs. Uh, 
but yeah, we're both working our way through season five and there's six seasons or seven, maybe there's six A and six B, however that works out. But anyway, it is an amazing show. I've had so many, I don't want to, you're only on season one. I don't want to have any spoilers, but I've had so many moments where I just have to hit pause. And even if I'm watching alone, I look around like, whoa, did anybody else see that? That was amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah. like just yeah. top, top, low, top notch acting, writing, just everything. It's like a, it's like a beautiful, great American novel. Uh, turned into one of the best tv shows of all time big fan i know we're a little late to the game but hey it's great because now we get to enjoy it now in the year 2020 we you know we we were smart because we're getting to have this experience now right and if you watch sopranos 20 years ago you're probably jealous of us i got i got the ultimate compliment for a tv show which is somebody responded to my tweet and said i'm so jealous that you're getting to watch it for the first time which is when you love a show so much, that's like the thing that you wish you could do is go back and experience it again for the first time. So that I felt like that was uh, just about as high of a, a recommendation as I could get on it. So uh, I'm pumped. And no spoilers, but Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Can you believe it? It's just, it's just blows your mind, really, when you think about it. Uh, Benjamin Hill, again, on Twitter, at Ben's Biz, and the stuff is up on the site right now. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Sam, sitting not to my left or to my right, but with me in spirit. As we uh, have told you over the last few weeks, now that we are fully into quarantine season, we are going to continue along with uh, being joined by writers from MILB.com and um, alerting you to some of the good stuff that we've got up on the site. And uh, a great piece that went up to the site today on uh, April 2nd is by Kelsey Hannigan, who wrote a story that you may be sort of um, kind of in the back of your mind familiar with, or you may have heard something about at some point. I know there is a, a brief mention, I believe, of it in uh, in Ken Burns Baseball, which uh, is a, a topic du jour for a lot of people, the fact that we're all stuck around TVs and that that is thankfully streaming places. But um, it is a story about former Chattanooga pitcher Jackie Mitchell, who... Uh, Jackie in the 1930s, she reportedly struck out Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth and uh, was kind of a phenom for uh, a brief moment in a, a story that has uh, probably not gotten quite the level of attention that it should throughout baseball history. And it is one of those really awesome uh, historical uh, footnotes almost to those two uh, careers and Kelsey with a story up on the site right now this had to have been a really cool one obviously a really um, a big one to research uh, but a really cool one to get a chance to put together yeah I actually had never heard of it until last month I was preparing for a baseball trivia at a bar and so I was like oh let me just google like some random baseball facts so that I'm prepared for whatever comes my way at this bar trivia um, as one does and I saw that this 17-year-old girl, Jackie Mitchell, struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And then I saw that it happened on April 2nd. So I thought, well, the anniversary coming up, might as well look into it. Um, so actually, a few people had written books about it. Like, it's this thing that everyone either, like, knows a lot about or has never heard of it. Um, so, yeah, like you said, uh, Jackie Mitchell, she signed a contract with Chattanooga, and she played an exhibition game with them against the Yankees, uh, which apparently at the time that was really common for major league teams on their train ride home from spring training to stop at towns like Chattanooga and play an exhibition game. Uh, so at 17 years old, Jackie, who had some experience in semi-pro ball in men's leagues and women's leagues, came in in relief and, yeah, struck out Babe Ruth on four pitches and then Lou Gehrig on three pitches. Um, but then 
as I dug into the research more and talked to more people about it, I realized that people are pretty split on if Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth were involved in truck out on purpose or not. Yeah, and that's one thing I think is interesting about what you touch on in the piece is, is you know, we don't know. There's no, there is some video. There's actually a good video you include in there of Babe Ruth getting angry and like throwing his bat down and, and complaining to the umpire about a pitch. Um, so we know a little bit about it, but we don't know the intentions. Nobody's quite on record. Although Jackie seems to have thought that the guy's meant to strike out. I know you talked to Major League Baseball historian John Thorne about this, and he seems to think both were acting and going along with a gig. Um, but in, your writing and reporting about this, did you f- find that that mattered? I mean, I, yeah, it, it's important. It would be great if she struck her, struck them out without them knowing. Uh, it would also be interesting if, if, you know, they were acting or playing into it. But the fact that there's this dichotomy, how much does that matter to the kind of legend of Jackie Mitchell? I mean, it matters to an extent. Like, you know, first thought, the cool part of it is that this, you know, 17-year-old, struck out major leaguers and potentially the, you know, arguably the greatest major league batters of all time. Um, and so if that was real, that definitely heightens it a little bit. Um, but I think either way, it's important to still tell these stories. I mean, we don't really realize how many times women have faced major league players and professional male baseball players. Um, you know, we think about a league of their own and like the women's leagues that were separate. Um, but this really was a part of our history. You know, Lizzie Arlington in the 1800s pitched professional baseball. Like there are a lot of these stories and these women who we should, you know, learn more about and research and share their stories to continue on um, for the future. One of the things um, that you point out in the the early paragraphs in the story, Joe Engel, who was the owner of the Chattanooga Lookouts at the time, uh, he signed Jackie Mitchell on March 28th of 1931. The game was originally scheduled for April 1st, and he was really known as uh, sort of the one of the quotes in here is that he was the P.T. Barnum of the Bush Leagues because of what he was able to do promotionally. What did you learn about him? And obviously that's something that plays into a story like this, that uh, an owner wanted some visibility from it. But how did Joe Engel uh, – contribute to this being uh, an event well for starters the game was originally supposed to be on uh, april 1st which is april fool's day so that's part of why a lot of people think that it was a hoax and you know just i guess that plays into either way if it was real or not you know at the time a woman pitching against the yankees was i guess a joke apparently um but yeah like as it says in the story he did a lot of crazy things like one day, you know, we talk about all these fun promotions that minor league teams had, but back in the day, Joe Engel gave away a house, like, with a car in the garage, like, as a promotion at the game. You know, he just wanted to do whatever wacky, crazy things he could to get fans to the game, which still lives on today. All right, Kelsey. Well, we talked to Ben about this a little bit, but uh, you also contributed to this piece that we did as a staff this week that was the seemed to do really well and people were talking about it and got things going on the internet a little bit in terms of if you could plan an ideal uh, minor league road trip for a weekend, three days, four days, what have you, uh, where would you go? You picked Central New York uh, with the Auburn Double Days, Syracuse Mets and Tri-City Valley Cats. What I like about your section was that it was kind of optimistic uh, 
you know, you, you plan on going to the Hall of Fame induction this year uh, with Derek Jeter and Larry Walker getting in, uh, that would kind of be folded into this. But it seems like a really cool trip just for any baseball historian uh, or any fan of the game to get some baseball in while also checking in at Cooperstown. Yeah, like you said, my uh, next scheduled baseball trip would, would have been or is still to go to Cooperstown for the Hall of Fame induction. I've never been. Um, so I was just thinking about that. And then also just like that area, there are so many teams. You know, I've recently been looking at a lot of minor league maps uh, for a future project. Um, but yeah, I just think it's interesting, especially in New York, they have, you know, you can go from AAA to short season. They have all the different levels so you can see with just a quick drive. So I liked that you could go to Auburn where they're named after the double days for Abner Doubleday, who people say invented baseball in Cooperstown, New York, but continuing the history. And then in Syracuse, of course, that's where Tim Tebow will likely play uh, when baseball resumes. So that's the biggest draw. You know, I grew up a Florida Gators fan, so it's always cool to see him. And then, you know, Tri-City, just another, you know, team of the future at that lower level, just to, you know, really any Miley Park you go to, you can see potential superstars one day, um, which is just great. Kelsey Hennigan on Twitter at Kelsey underscore Hennigan. And the story uh, of Jackie Mitchell is up on the site right now at MILB.com. And uh, a really cool piece. You can see the uh, the gif of Babe Ruth striking out and turning around. I would not have wanted to be that umpire. I, that, like, yeah. you're, you're like a double-A dude in Chattanooga and Babe Ruth freaks out and throws his bat down in front of you. That is not a job that I would uh, – I uh, probably wouldn't take that one. Prepare you for the majors, no matter yeah, what position true. you play. I guess that's true. <laughs> that's a good point. Kelsey, thanks. <laughs> no, thank you. Continuing on this week's episode of the show before the show, we've got a really great story and uh, probably the timeliest of uh, the content that we've had on the site as of late. And uh, with it, we bring in our Michael Alonu at a piece up um, that ran earlier this week. We're recording on uh, on Thursday again, and this one went up on Monday. And it is in regards to uh, former Los Angeles Dodgers slash Seattle Mariners prospect Adam Law, who um, has a brother who is uh, in the medical field and right now uh, a, a team of the, the Law Brothers and their entire uh, group of, of cohorts who are joining the fight against COVID-19. Uh, Michael, welcome back, buddy. This is such a, a fascinating story. Give us the, the rundown on this one. First off, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it kind of it came to our attention. Um, we saw a tweet. You know, we, we, our social media, uh, you know, Twitter universe is vast and expansive and, and we saw uh you know adam law former like you said former dodger mariners prospect um had tweeted out about n95 masks that they had the ability to ship them uh to people that need them they're just trying to get the word out to people that do need them to be able to contact them so they can get them in the right hands so um you know did a little digging and you know got his got his information asked if he want to speak with us to get the word out and he was uh, more than accommodating, and uh, you know, spoke with him for for a little while actually about uh, his brother uh, who owns a dental a dental supply company. Um, so you know, anything you see in dental dentist offices, orthodontic offices, they they send out items all over the country, all over the world, and masks are something that they had anyway, but they've kind of focused on that. You know, now with the obvious need that's going on uh, around the world. 
And what exactly are they doing? It's one thing to just have these, um, but what exactly are they doing to get these masks out and also spread the word of, hey, we have these, we know hospitals need them, nurses need them, doctors need them. Um, you know, right. what, what is the law family, I guess, doing uh, with all those masks now in their possession? They're just, like I said, you know, one of the big things that, you know, he was so eager to talk to us about was because it was something that could spread, you know, the word. They're, they can't just send masks, I guess, to anyone unless, you know, they're spoken to about what they need in particular. They're, they've been on Twitter, they've been on Facebook, and, you know, on you know, old school communication, I, I think I mentioned in the article, by phone, by email, uh, Anyone that needs it, they want to get in touch with them. They're getting their website out there. Um, they just have a link or a hookup, I guess you could say, into the production companies for these masks. And they're under the contract with uh, what company it was. I'm not sure if he said it, he told me. But um, the ability to distribute these masks to people all over the world. In the article I had mentioned, Adam had said that someone from Algeria, someone from Nigeria, uh, had contacted them, you know, huge bulk orders for hospitals, for doctors. He said even if someone ordered just a, a, you know, a small amount because their family members or they themselves are in the healthcare profession that need some, um, you know, they'd be willing to do it. They just want to, you know, do their part. And because he owns, his brother owns a, you know, a dental supply company that has the ability to use or not use, but, you know, get in touch with the people that, make these masks um they can keep a constant supply going even then it's you know it's still on the short end with i mean you know the demand i think is something you know that we can't even comprehend right now no matter what how much numbers you hear out there um the demand for these things all over the world right now is just so vast that you know even they can't keep up no matter how much they can constantly get the flow moving but they just want to keep that flow moving to just at least make a dent in some way Mike, one of the other things that uh, kind of plays into this story right now, and it has mm -hmm. changed since the story went up, but now there is uh, a lot of talk that the CDC is going to be revising its guidelines to recommend uh, that all Americans at this stage of the pandemic wear some type of mask, whether it is a, a disposable mask or a cloth mask or something like that. And that is because uh, it's not really a change in the science. I mean, so often early on you heard, uh, well, wearing a mask if you're not sick might not do anything for you. That's not the conversation anymore the conversation now is a lot of people can carry the coronavirus can carry COVID-19 and be asymptomatic meaning they are not showing it so that guideline would be uh in the event that you are somebody who has this that is infected by it but you don't know then that would enable you if you are wearing a mask to hopefully contain uh that to yourself and not risk infecting people around you if this is a circumstance where uh adam and his brother in that company if they can provide for the general public is that something that uh that he sounded like they would be open to i know he was very quick to point out you know this is not about profit this is not about business for us right. this is about trying to keep people healthy and that maybe is a next step in this Absolutely. And and they said they would distribute those masks to anyone that got on their website in order. Now, I mean, I'm not sure. From what I saw from the website, I don't think it's one of those websites because it's a, a supply, you know, company. I don't think it's you can go on and order one mask. It's not like Amazon Prime or something like that, for you know, for example, right, where you right. could just add one or two in your cart. Um, 
But I also don't know. He had said, absolutely, anyone could go on there and order, like I said. Is it people that we've had people that have ordered and reached out to us that either are in the medical profession themselves, so they're ordering it for themselves and maybe their coworkers, or people that have family in the medical profession that they're trying to help get those masks to. Um, I also do know from you know what I've read, obviously, it's, it's such an evolving situation you know, with this COVID-19 every day. Um, but that if the CDC and, you know, the WHO do recommend masks being worn, I still think they may err on the side of don't, unless you're a medical professional, leave the N95 respirators, which are the specific masks we were talking about in the article, um, to the healthcare professionals that truly need them. For people that are kind of wandering around on the street and stuff like that, as far as I've read, they were just saying anything, you know, put on some type of mask, a, you know, a mask that, you know, there's a difference between like a surgical mask and an N95 respirator. Right. Um, you know, cover yourself with a, a bandana or something. Just something like that even could help. Um, but just, to, you know, kind of diverted there a little. But to answer your question directly, yeah, anyone could go on and order, um, you know, whether it's for themselves, for others, or for, you know, their hospital or medical clinic. It uh, doesn't matter to them. Yeah, I guess we should say what the name of the the website is for anybody at home who knows somebody who could use this whether it's you know like mike just mentioned um individuals or specific healthcare providers healthcare workers uh it's smilestreamsolutions.com uh when we tweeted out about this story after it went live adam law replied to it with the website the website the company is mentioned in the story uh we just want to get it out there so if you people have tweeted out to us that they are involved in the healthcare industry. They're, they're trying to do all they can. If this company can be of any help to you, go visit SmileStream Solutions. Get the Law Brothers to help you out because, uh, yeah, this this brings everybody in regardless of their field. Yeah, it does. He actually, you know, he, he text messaged me after the article uh, ran, you know, thanking me. And, you know, I, as I've always said, when I do get thanks from anyone, for no matter what the story is, whether it's just, a, you know, about a baseball player, you know, that in his personal life or his on-field stuff i just tell him it's your story you know we're just getting it out there um i mean obviously there's a little extra meaning behind this uh, and he texted me again yesterday saying that uh you know the the reception has been fantastic and then you know they're getting a lot of hits and clicks and you know that's great because all like they want to do is help and you know one side benefit is there's a lot of people in this world that uh you know band together at times like this but there's also a lot of people that try and take advantage and he said People have looked at the article and are using that as a basis um, to show that it's a legit situation and not just some scam that people are seeing online or something like that. So uh, what we can do to help, uh, we're all trying to play our part in trying to get through this uh, situation. That is really cool. And uh, the story is up at the site at MILB.com. Um, you know, as we continue in uh, the the strangest and most random ways to cross paths with this from the baseball world, uh, we're going to continue to try to highlight these things and uh, and bring you at least the way the baseball is doing its part to try to help fight uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. Obviously, last week, Major League Baseball, uh, with the news that the former Majestic plant, which is now a Nike slash Fanatics uh, facility in Pennsylvania, has shifted its manufacturing. Manufacturing uh, from making player jerseys and uniforms to 
now masks and gowns uh, for medical personnel. And, uh, you know, there are so many of those things across the country right now. And uh, it's it's scary and tough and unfortunate that we're in a circumstance where this is uh, the case for so many of these companies. But to see so many of these companies now doing their part uh, to join this fight and and try to help bring this thing to heal is pretty incredible stuff. And uh, just a great story from Michael, which is up on the site right now. And, uh, Michael, it's always good for us to talk to you, buddy. And uh, hopefully as we continue doing these things over the next few weeks, we'll uh, start talking about progressively lighter and lighter and better and more baseball-related things. Yeah, let, let's hope so. I appreciate you guys having me on. And uh, stay safe, both of you. You too, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra getting set to uh, put the finishing touches on this week's dealio. Yeah. So what? I've never said that before. The deal. We're, we're trying to make things cool and hip. <laughs> trying to. Yeah. We're trying to, you know, change the vibe. It, something like yeah. That. I, th- okay. I feel like I should be snapping through this. Should I be doing uh, <laughs> slam poetry or something? Um, oh, man. Anyway, so th- this is going to be a new segment that we're going to be doing doing going forward uh that's it's called the nationwide prospect profile or you know we'll come we'll play with the name a little bit as we get deeper into it but nationwide is coming on and uh we're doing a new segment with them focused on some of the top prospects in the game we're going to come to you each week bringing you kind of a fun fact i i I don't want to come to you guys and bring you something you don't know uh so we're going to come with a fun fact about top prospects something we've uncovered in the past week uh something that hopefully is a little bit illuminating to you at home, uh, something you didn't know before. Um, so this week, you know, for a new segment, we might as well start at the top. We're going to start out with a fun fact about Wander Franco. Uh, as many of you know, he was 18 years old for most of last year, uh, just turned 19 the other day on March 1st. So I wanted to look back and find out what 18-year-olds were kind of in a similar situation to him last year. He went from Class A Bowling Green to Class A Advanced Charlotte. Uh, And this is what I found. In the last decade, so 2010 to 2019, only eight players in their age 18 season got 200 plate appearances at the Class A Advanced level. Um, It's kind of a sign of normally 18-year-olds aren't pushed to full season ball to begin with, uh, never mind to the second lowest level of full season ball or well uh the step above class a i should say at class a advanced so only eight guys reach it those eight guys are vladimir guerrero jr mike trout luis garcia of the washington nationals organization wilmer flores manny machado igai rosario and adalberto mondesi that's a pretty good group also wander franco is in that group now of that group wander franco's wrc plus and for those of you who don't know who, what WRC Plus is, 100 is considered average. Uh, so, Wander Franco's WRC Plus at Class A Advanced Charlotte last year was 157, meaning he was 57% better than the league average hitter in the Florida State League. That's really good. That was second best among that group of eight. First best was Vladimir Guerrero Jr., as we all remember when he was up in Dunedin a couple of years ago. Uh, he absolutely torched the ball. He had a 190. Uh, 179 WRC plus, excuse me. But Wonder Franco was a better hitter at high A than Mike Trout was at the same age. Mike Trout had a 117. That's 40 points lower than Wander Franco. Luis Garcia, who 
we all thought was a top 100 prospect. He's still a top 100 prospect after having a dip last year at Double A, but he moved through the NAT system really quickly. Uh, he had a 112 WRC plus in his age 18 season. Wilmer Flores had a 112 same level there. Manny Machado. Now we know him as you know, a big free agent signing for the Padres, one of the best infielders in Orioles history. Uh, Manny Machado had a 96 WRC plus in his age 18 season uh, in that Orioles system. So Wander Franco is already several steps above guys who we think as already top talents. Um, you know, how is he going to hold up on that? We saw what happened to Vlad Jr. when he made the majors, kind of took a step back, uh, but still has all the potential in the world. But when we talk about Wander Franco having an 80-grade hit tool, this is a big reason why. He is doing things at his age and at certain levels that just are not done in the minor leagues. This is a really, really rare class and gives you sort of an idea of uh, what Wander Franco is capable of as he continues to grow, as he continues to climb and makes more adjustments uh, going forward. But Wander Franco, already a really good hitter at high A. Can't wait to see what he does uh, at double A Montgomery once this 2020 season begins. And that's going to be our nationwide prospect fun fact of the week. Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show, and uh, big thanks everybody for joining us this week, Sam, with uh, Toolshed uh, rolling out. What's what's coming up for you next? I'm just doing this because I have a series that I want to tease, so I'm going to tee you up. I'm going to tell you about mine. <laughs> I was going to turn it around, don't you worry. I'm very selfish uh, that way. Yeah, I mean, what I've been doing every Tuesday now is age lineups uh last week we did teenagers this year or this week rather uh was age 20 guys so it's people who will be 20 before june 30th that's when we talk about this is their age 20 season that's that's how we define it is june 30th uh it's usually about the midpoint of any season uh that's what baseball reference uses that's what i use for this age 20 is really loaded what i'm going to do going forward you know last week i did only teenagers because you get into 18 year olds 19 year olds some of the positions really fail apart 20 year olds was loaded uh it was really difficult to find a position which didn't have a top 100 prospect who is going into his age 20 season uh, you talk about like Jared Kelnick, Tristan Cassis, Nolan Gorman, Bobby Witt Jr., who was old for his class, Brett Beatty, old for his class last year in the draft. Uh, it was really fun to fill out this lineup. And one thing I like doing about this, too, is I've given myself the challenge of what would the batting order look like. Uh, so I won't ah. spoil it. Yeah, go go check out the piece. But trying to figure out who I would bat lead off in some of these positions uh, in some of these lineups going forward is going to be really difficult. And also, particularly with this one, when you have Kelnick, Gorman, Cassis, Beatty, how does that sort itself out in the middle of a lineup uh, was a little bit of a challenge for me as well. I won't spoil it. Go check out the piece. Go check out my rationalization. But um, this has been really fun to put together so far. We're going age 21 next week, 22 after that, as far as we can conceivably go with prospects uh so that's what i've got going uh tyler i'm really actually excited for what you're doing starting next week uh which is a little something different that we haven't done on the site before yeah so we uh you know we're trying to be fun and have some ideas that are um stuff that maybe we've thought about tackling before and haven't had a chance to and now obviously have uh some time to be able to dive into subjects that we um would like to investigate and so for me obviously not surprisingly uh there's a lot of logo and uniform ideas that i have um we so often get carried away with just talking about the the newest stuff the newest names the newest rebrands and wacky logos and which swinging bat characters brandios come with this time and uh i instead wanted to turn it around and talk about teams that have actually had identities 
for a long period of time. So I, so far, have gone through and contacted uh, the longest tenured nickname uh, or moniker in every full season league. So starting on Monday, um, I'll profile the kind of visual history of the Rochester Red Wings, who uh, are the longest tenured, uh, consistently used name in the International League. Toledo, obviously, uh, a ton of history with the Toledo Mudhens, but the current iteration of the Toledo Mudhens have only been around since 1965. Rochester traces its name all the way back to 1928, which, if you can believe it, uh, spoiler alert for the story on Monday, uh, actually predates the Detroit Red Wings name. Uh, Detroit's team was initially called the Cougars. They re, uh, rebranded, if you can apply that term, in 1932. Um to the Red Wings in part to kind of try to curry favor with uh, the motor industry uh, in the motor city, as you would imagine would be a successful business strategy. So Rochester came up with this name first. It was a unique name across all of professional sports at that time. And there's some really cool stuff uh, that I got a chance to talk with uh, Paul Bielowitz, who, man, Paul, I hope I did not butcher your last name, but who is uh, one of the authorities on Rochester baseball history. Uh, Paul and I talked earlier today. I was like, yeah, we'll talk for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then 35 minutes later, I was like, I kept you for way longer than I anticipated but um, a story that I'm excited about and uh, a series that I'm excited about and hopefully it will carry us long past uh, opening day but as of right now we're looking at probably a weekly thing for this um, and teams have been really excited and really helpful uh, with getting you know logos and uh and history information and all that type of stuff to me which i think uh is great when we have something that is uh, a thing anyone can focus on that isn't just the way of uh of the current world of all of us sitting around if we all have projects it feels so much better and so much lighter um so that's been kind of neat as well so first one is coming up on monday on rochester yeah and what i love so much about this is I feel like anytime a team rebrands, we have to have them justify why they're doing it. Like, why are you right. getting rid of your old uh, name? And they're like, oh, we, we want something fresh. And usually it just comes down to this is an opportunity to sell new merchandise and get new excitement behind a team. I feel like yeah. clubs, and we haven't had this happen really before, have to justify it more to not change and, right. and not jump right. in there. Um, so and starting that, with Rochester. That was one of the interesting yeah. I talked about with Paul was back in the 90s, uh, the Red Wings moved, they changed stadiums. And Paul said, you know, I think at, at some point there was a thought of, well, do we change this name? But it's so historic and it's been for so long and there's so much of an identity tied up in the history of that name uh, that they decided not to, to do it. And obviously the, the the Red Wings look now is a little bit more contemporary with uh, Spikes, who is the, um, the anthropomorphic bird in the logo and is the mascot now as well. But really interesting to see a team that says no the value of what this name means to us as a historic uh entity is the thing that we're going to bank on rather than uh the opposite of that so it's uh it's some really cool stuff and i'm excited to uh to put it together so we'll get started with that one on monday and uh, we'll kind of climb down the ranks from there it'll go international league uh, pacific coast league and then alphabetically through the leagues at each level so the eastern league will be the week after um and uh we should have some fun with it yeah. And like you said, uh, it seems like this is something that would take us to opening day normally, but hopefully this takes us well past that and we're, we're back yeah. to baseball well before then, before we Fingers have to talk about the crossed. Happy League. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we will, uh, we'll leave you on that note for this week. So big thanks, everybody, who joined the show. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. 